God where it says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statue given to Israel. There are the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace found within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can uh, think uh, now on your word, that we can hear your word read. And Father, we ask that as we uh, reflect on it now, that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would encourage us and strengthen us in our faith. Uh, We ask that you would open our eyes to see your glory Uh, We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there's something, isn't there, about uh, about going home Uh, at the end of a holiday. You've had a uh, you've had a great time away, but you kind of can't wait to get back. Uh, Maybe that's just me. I don't know. You get back to your own bed. You get back to your own kitchen, your own garden, uh, your own backyard. It's just nice to be back home. There's kind of a sense of security and peace and uh, and familiarity. Uh, My my family have a habit of going back home early from (laughs) from holidays. Uh, My parents travelled around Australia. They planned for years to go on a caravan trip uh, and they went away and uh, I don't know, after about three months or something like that, they just went, you know what, let's just go home. (laughs) Let's, let's, you know, let's, we're we're, we're kind of done here. Uh, And uh, and my family's a bit like that, I think. Uh, But even at the end of a work day, it's nice to go back home, isn't it? Uh, you've had a hard day and, uh, and you go back home, uh, or if you, even if you spent sort of a, a nice day having a barbecue at someone's house, it's nice to go back to your own home uh, and to relax and to kind of, uh, and to chill out. There's something relaxing about home, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of security and there's a sense of joy. And the Psalms that we're looking at over the next few weeks uh, in the lead up to Christmas are all Psalms or songs or prayers about going home, but not uh, prayers and songs and Psalms about going just to any home, but to going, uh, to, to going home uh, to be with God. You'll notice at uh, the top of the psalm that we, that we read, Psalm 122, there's some little words in the Bible Uh, that say a song of ascents. Those little words on the Psalms are, unlike other headings in the Bible uh, that you might get, say, in the Gospels or something like that, those other headings are added by the editors of the modern Bibles just to help us know what's going on. But these titles in the Psalms are original. Uh, They they belong. They're, They're the words of the Bible rather than the words of editors. 
And the songs of ascents are 15 psalms that begin in Psalm 120 and go through to Psalm uh, 134. Uh, And they are songs literally about going up, about going up to Jerusalem. You'll see if you look at the first few psalms, Psalm 120, 121, 122, that there's a kind of a progression. There's There's a story. Uh, In Psalm 120, the people find themselves in a foreign land. In verse 5 of that psalm, we're told that they live in Meshech and Kedar. That is, they live outside the promised land. They live among people who hate peace. In Psalm 121, uh, there seems to be a kind of a journey taking place. The writer says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Traveling among the hills was a dangerous prospect. It was a threatening thing. You can imagine walking, uh, you're, on a, you're on a journey, you're traveling through this valley, you're lifting your eyes to the hills and you're wondering, where does my help come from? It's dangerous. Are there robbers here? Am I going to be attacked? Where is my help coming from uh, as I look for safety along this journey? But the, uh, the writer of that psalm knows, verse 3 of Psalm 121, that God will not let your foot slip and the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. There's safety and security on this journey from a foreign land uh, to the home of the people of God. Psalm 122 then begins with the people at the gates of Jerusalem. They've been on this journey, they've been on this dangerous journey, uh, but they finally arrive at the gates uh, of Jerusalem. Verse 1, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Someone has said to David, the author, let's go back to Jerusalem. And finally, they've made it back. They're standing, their feet are in Jerusalem, they're standing in the gates, and David is rejoicing with the people who made that suggestion. It's like when somebody says to you, let's go, uh, you know, let's go to Sydney for a holiday. And you get there, and you have a great time, and you think to, your, and you think to yourself, wow, whose idea was it to come to Sydney? That was such a great idea. David's saying, whose idea was it to come to Jerusalem? What a great idea. I rejoiced with those people who said to me, let's go up to Jerusalem because we got here and it was so exciting. I'm so glad to be back. But David rejoices not just because he's come back to Jerusalem for a holiday. The purpose of going back there is to go to the house of the Lord, he says. That is, to go to the temple. The temple was, in the Old Testament, the place uh, where God had promised to meet with his people in a special way. God was with his people wherever they were. (laughs) He was with them on that dangerous journey, wasn't he, in Psalm 121? But God had promised to be uh, with his people uh, at the temple in a special way. And because the temple was situated in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was, if you like, the city of God. And David comes back to Jerusalem for the purpose of meeting with God. Jerusalem was this kind of outpost of heaven on earth. And in the New Testament, that idea of Jerusalem as the city of God, the city where people meet with God, kind of explodes into this whole new level of meaning. Uh, In Revelation, we're told about a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Jerusalem is not just a city there, but it's a whole new creation. 
It's a whole new world. The whole world becomes a meeting place with God. Just like in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of history, an ordinary garden was the meeting place between God and Adam and Eve, so now the whole world becomes again a place where people meet God and live with God. So Jerusalem in the Old Testament points in two directions. It points back to the garden, back to the world that God made when people lived with God and walked with God and knew God and spoke with God. It points back to that, but it also points forward to the new Jerusalem, the new creation, where God will make the world like that once again. So in that sense, this psalm understood kind of from that perspective in terms of the overall storyline of the Bible, from garden to exile to restoration... This psalm is a vision of people standing in the new, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, at the end of their journey home to God. They've finally made it. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go back to God. Let's go back to meet God. Our feet are standing in that city. <laughs> I rejoiced with the person who said, let's go back. What a great idea to do that. You see, as good as home is, there's still something not quite right about it. As good as it is to go home after a holiday, to go home at the end of a hard day's work, there's still something not right. There's still something not quite satisfying, not quite complete, not quite right. In The Lord of the Rings, uh, Frodo, when he returns from carrying the uh, ring to Mount Doom, uh, he, can't, he discovers that he can't go back to the Shire. The home that he loved is no longer his home. After his long and bitter journey of carrying this ring, his home can no longer provide the deep rest that he needs. His only home now is somewhere else, on the other side of the sea, the Grey Havens. It's the only place where he can go to find that deep rest uh, that he really, really needs. And in all of us, I think, there's this deep longing for home, a deep longing for rest, a deep longing for security, a deep longing for God. But nothing can meet that desire, this side of eternity. C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. (laughs) Nothing could satisfy me. Because there's a deeper longing pressed and printed on my heart. God has programmed us deeply to be in a relationship with him until we, until we meet with God face to face. There's something missing. We're never home. As Switchfoot uh, sung in the title song of the, uh, of the film Prince Caspian, riffing off those words from C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis, they said, created for a place I've never known. We're created for a world for an experience which we've never had, a place that we've never been to. But that isn't a place that you can walk to. 
It's not a place that you can buy a ticket for, go to the travel agent. I'd like to book a ticket to heaven, to the new creation. No, the, the, uh, the, the place that we're going to uh, is not of this world. Some people still go on pilgrimages to Jerusalem, uh, looking for some kind of spiritual reward. But God's plan for redemption and renewal is bigger than a city. And the place that we're going to is further away from us than the land of Israel. The only way to that place is in Jesus. Jesus opens up the way way for us to that new Jerusalem. And without him, we'd never make it. It's too far with too many obstacles, too many dangers, too many perils that we can't overcome, too many rivers that we can't ford, too many mountains that we can't climb over. In fact, Jesus has come to us and offers to carry us there with him. He's come to carry us on a cross and in an empty tomb to carry us on a journey that we could never make on our own. Well, if we know and love Jesus, we don't just long for that place, we belong to it. We belong to that city. We're citizens of another country, belonging to another home. And even the best home here is like an airport transfer hotel. (laughs) A stopover on the way to something better. One day we'll set foot in that city, in the city of God, and we'll see God face to face, and that deep, unmet longing will finally be fully satisfied. Our souls will be fully satisfied. C.S. Lewis uh, goes on, he says, I must take care uh, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they're only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. We're heading for another land, but... We're not just on our way to a new city. Strangely enough, in a sense, we're also partly already there. The writer of Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. There's a sense in which we're already there. By faith in Jesus, we've already met God. And by the Spirit, we're already gathered around God in the heavenly Jerusalem. Wherever we are, through the Holy Spirit, we're gathered around God. This morning, gathered here together, we're gathered around God. At your home, later today, gathered around God. There's a beginning of the joy and the rest that comes from meeting God and knowing God in Jesus. But that... Reality, actually, rather than satisfying us, drives us to long for more. We get a taste. It's like ice cream. Once you've started, you just can't stop. 
It's the sugar. And so when we meet Jesus in the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit, it satisfies us a bit, but it leaves us with this deeper longing for more. And and that's a, a hallmark of people who have genuinely tasted the saving grace of God. A great longing for heaven, a longing to be with God and to know God more deeply. Well, David was excited <laughs> and he just made it back to the earthly Jerusalem. Uh, he was excited because it was a return to the presence of God. But David also goes on to give three other reasons why he's so excited about being in this city, in this earthly city, this city of God. Uh, the first reason that he gives is that this city is unified. He says in verse 3, Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Now that... For those of us living in Australia with our, uh, whatever it is, quarter acre block or something, and uh, the idea of a closely compacted city might not be all that attractive. Uh, But the idea is one of unity. Literally, the expression is something like, Jerusalem is built as a city allied together. And in the next verse, we're told about the 12 tribes coming together to meet in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where the 12 tribes... Uh, which were normally scattered across the length and breadth of the land of Israel, the 12 tribes would come together. They'd meet together uh, in the city of God. Every year for various feasts, they'd trek up, they'd head back to Jerusalem from where they were living. And the New Testament vision is very similar. It's a vision of people from every tribe and language and people and nation coming together, meeting in the city of God, meeting around God. Why is it so good to be in the New Jerusalem? Because people from all over the world are there. People from every background, people from every language group. But not only are people there, people are united. People are joined together. We find difference so difficult to overcome, don't we? We find people being different from us so hard, so confronting, so challenging. Different interests, different ages, different life circumstances, different abilities. We live in a multicultural society. But one of the difficulties of that is that because of human sin, we can't get on with each other. We're suspicious of people who are different from us. But it won't be like that in the New Jerusalem. We'll be allied together, we'll be one, we'll be like the houses of this city, buttressed up against each other, touching each other. Hopefully not too closely, uh, but touching, supporting each other, working together. Hopefully there'll still be a chair between us, uh, you know, every time (laughs) we come to church. But We find difference so difficult, don't we? But the vision of this new Jerusalem is a place where difference is not extinguished, but is overcome by unity. No one will ever say, well, that person's not my age. No one will ever say, we have nothing in common. No one will ever say, there's not enough young families, or there's too many young families. No one will ever say those things because the city will be built together. 
People will say, you're totally different from me. We have nothing in common except the gospel of Jesus Christ, except where we've been brought here by the blood of Jesus. And what's even more remarkable is, as we saw before in Hebrews chapter 12, there's a sense in which we're already united. In that picture of Hebrews 12, we're already gathered, already united around the throne of God. We don't have to wait until the return of Jesus. In a profound sense, we're already gathered as one. And as that unity in Jesus around the throne of God works into our lives more and more, those differences and distinctions begin to fade away, already here and now. It's a bit like a marriage, you know. On the day that you're married, uh, the law says, you, you are united. <laughs> but what the law says is sometimes different from the reality, isn't it? You know, a newly married husband and wife often are pulling in different directions. And over time... As that marriage goes on, people learn to live together. They learn to pull in the same direction. And so it is when we become Christians, we become united in Christ. We are declared united in Christ. And yet there's a sense in which we have to grow in learning to live with each other and learning to be united in Christ, working that unity out. And it takes a long time. It takes a lifetime to learn that. But one day at the return of Jesus, that process of becoming more and more united will be finally complete. We'll be a city closely compacted together for the, for the praise and the glory of God. Well, the first reason David is excited is because uh, he's back at the city where God is. The second reason he's excited is because uh, the city is a united city. The, the third reason is that it's a place where people praise God. That doesn't mean Jerusalem was the only place where people praised God, but it was the place where people were united in that purpose. They were closely compacted together, but they were also united more particularly in the praise of God. Don't think uh, of praise only as singing. Praise refers to something like confession and declaration. That is, people are united in the testimony to God's grace and goodness. They say to each other things like, Let me tell you about the good thing that God has done for me today. Let me tell you how great God is. Let me tell you how compassionate and loving God is. There are people who are so full of the idea of God, the knowledge of God, the love of God, that the praise and the glory and the declaration of God's goodness spews out of them. That's the vision of the the New Testament as well. Uh, In Revelation, John sees the new creation as a place where people are captivated by the glory of God. They sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and power forever and ever. David is excited about being in Jerusalem because God is there. He's excited because it's a place where people are united. He's also, he's also excited because it's a place where God is praised and honoured and glorified. The final reason uh, that he's excited is because this city is a place where God rules, God's king rules. Jerusalem uh, is a place where God's king ensures that the world is just and right. 
So look at verse 5. Uh, there it's, we're told, there the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Uh, Jerusalem is the place where people obey the king rather than uh, seeking to make themselves king. It's the place where people obey God rather than themselves. Of course, Jerusalem was never actually like that. <laughs> you just have to look through the pages of the Old Testament to discover that people never obeyed the king and the king himself never obeyed God. Well, not never, but they often didn't. But that was the ideal, that Jerusalem would be the place where God was honoured and glorified and obeyed, where God's rule was established, where it would be a place that was just and right and good. Again, this vision that David has for Jerusalem was just a shadow. It, it, it never found reality. It was just a shadow of God's great King Jesus and God's new creation in Jesus. Imagine a place where truth always prevailed. Imagine living in a world where you never had to wonder, is that person lying to me? You go to the shops uh, and you, know, you say to the person, does this look good on me? Oh yeah, it looks fantastic. Does it really? Or are you just saying it? It's a silly example, isn't it? But, but actually, that kind of mistrust that so invades our world actually erodes so much of our lives, doesn't it? And our confidence in each other. Imagine living in a world where politicians always told the truth. They never just said something to get elected. Imagine living in a world where you never bought a second-hand car wondering if you were being sold a lemon. Imagine a world where there are no email scams. Where news reports were always accurate and always represented what happened. I've discovered uh, over the years that you read the headline and you think it, says, it means one thing. And you go into the article and it means something else. And so if you're in a hurry, you can completely misunderstand what's going on in the world. Imagine living in a world where truth prevailed. No wonder the people were in such a hurry to get there. And no wonder they were glad when they did arrive. I didn't catch much of the cricket yesterday, but uh, I saw enough to know that there was a massively controversial decision uh, by the third umpire. Nathan Lyon was given not out, uh, even though uh, the, the replay, or hotspot replay, showed that the ball had hit the bat uh, and then been caught. And listening to the commentary after the game, what struck me was that all this technology had been introduced to make sure that we got the right decision. Everyone said, no longer will the game hinge on one bad decision. And yet here we were, with all the great technology, Snicko, Hotspot, slow motion replay. And people are still making bad decisions. We want absolutely certain judgments 
But as the cricket and the football prove, absolutely certain judgments elude us. And the only way that you can make a certain judgment is by having omniscience, is by knowing everything. God knows everything. And so the new Jerusalem where God rules is a place of absolute justice and truth. There'll never be a mistake again. (laughs) There'll never be a mistake in the cricket. David expresses his joy at finally arriving at the city of God. He's excited because it's the place where God has promised to meet his people. He's excited because it's a place where people are united, where God's people are unified. He's excited because it's a place of the praise and the honour and the glory of God. He's excited because it's a place where God rules through his king. Finally, David urges in the last part of this psalm, prayer for the peace of the city. Verses 6 to 9 focus uh, on that theme. Uh, He writes, pray For the peace of Jerusalem, may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Jerusalem uh, in Old Testament times was a city under threat. That became clear during the period of the exile. The city was destroyed. It was razed to the ground. The people were sent away. What good is it to be delivered to a city which is under siege? A city which can fall? So David rightly prays that God would grant Jerusalem peace, that it wouldn't be like that. Some people suggest that the import of this psalm, that the relevance of this psalm for today is that you and I should pray for Israel, for the city of Jerusalem in the land of Israel. But as we've seen hopefully this morning, that misunderstands the way that Jerusalem works in the Bible, especially in the light of the New Testament. Rather than praying for Jerusalem, for that one city, our prayer rather is for the peace of the whole world. For the peace of the whole world that will be ushered in when Jesus comes to establish his new creation. When Jesus comes to defeat his enemies, all those people who stand against him, all those people who stand against his people, all those people who refuse to humble themselves before him, before that day comes. It's not hard, I think, for us to see the need for peace, for world peace. All you have to do is turn on the television or read the newspaper or listen to the radio. 130 people killed in France in one night. An attack on a hotel in Mali, leaving 19 people dead. War in Syria and Iraq. A Russian fighter jet shot down. Risking further repercussions. War and unrest in South Sudan. Homegrown terrorism. An innocent police accountant gunned down by a 15-year-old boy. Two policemen stabbed by a young man. Children holding up for the camera severed heads. And if it's not a war on terrorism or just war in general, it's domestic violence. Women being beaten up by their own husbands. Husbands being set alight by their wives. Children being beaten by their own family. Or the scourge of drugs. 
ice-fueled violence. It's not hard for us, I think, to want to pray for peace because our world, our world is a world that lacks peace. But praying for the peace that will be ushered in with the new creation and with the return of Jesus is not the kind of prayer that we pray where we don't know what the outcome will be. Where we pray and we think, well, I hope God listens to this one. Now, our prayer for peace in the new creation is a prayer that God will answer. It's a prayer that we pray with confidence. One day we'll turn on the television and the first 10 minutes of the news won't be war. And it won't be murder. And it won't be domestic violence. One day we'll turn on the television and the news will be covered with stories about the glory of God in Christ. That's the hope of the new creation held out in the gospel and guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a hope of a new world where we meet God. A world where we meet with each other and are so deeply united that we love to be in each other's presence in the presence of God. A world where we just can't get enough of saying how much God has done for us. A world of justice and truth and righteousness where God reigns. And a world that's never under threat, but a world perpetually at peace. We're not there yet, but one day we'll stand on the edge of the city of God and say, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go up to the city of God. Let's go up to the house of God. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the vision of this psalm that David saw with the eyes of faith, a lasting city, a heavenly city, a new creation, forged by your own hands, forged through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, each of us knows deep in our hearts the longing that we have for a better world, a world at peace, a world united, a world where we see you face to face, a world where you are honoured and glorified. Lord, we pray that you would awaken in us more acutely those desires and longings so that we would desire you more and more, so that we would cleave to Christ more strongly, so that we would put all our hope in him. Father, press on our hearts the great joy and hope that we have in the gospel and help us uh, to follow Christ and to trust him and to know that he is the one who gets us there uh, through his grace and mercy uh, and death on the cross. Father, we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.